0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Darcy Fontaine, the author of Decolonizing Christianity, Religion, and the End of Empire in France and Algeria. And the book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016. Hi there, Darcy. Hi. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Would you get us started by telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in working on the history of decolonization in France and Algeria? Sure, absolutely.
1: Uh, So I am currently an assistant professor of history at the University
0: of South Florida in Tampa. I've
1: been teaching since I finished graduate school at Rutgers University in 2011. And I got started on this project. It took a kind of winding road to get there. Uh, When I first started graduate school, I was not working on Algeria or decolonization, but I was in fact working on a project about transnational uh, women's activism and pacifist movements and anti-fascist movements in the 1930s. And so I had started out doing this project and I'd done a couple years of research on it. Um, and it just kind of wasn't going where I wanted it to go. And I had gone in to see my advisor, Bonnie Smith, and I just told her, Bonnie, this project is not working. I don't really know what to do. I think it's just going to be over. And she kind of <laughs> had this uh, famous response where she just was like, oh, thank God, it's just gonna <laughs> be super boring dissertation. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. Well, thanks for telling me. <laughs> she's like, well, you had to figure it out for yourself. She's like, what else have you got? And I was like, well, I was doing this African history course. And I was kind of right at that moment in the early 2000s when, you know, French histories were discovering that their French historians, excuse me, were discovering that there were missionaries in the French Empire. And mm-hmm. J.P. Doughton's work was coming out. And I was like, well, OK, this seems like an interesting field. And I was like, I'll go see what happened in Algeria. Right? And so I'd gone to the uh, New York Public Library to see what kind of stuff they had. Mm-hmm. They didn't really have anything about missionaries per se, but they had this amazing pamphlet that I stumbled on, which um, is essentially part of the introduction of the book now, um, about these Christians who had, uh, you know, betrayed France by helping uh, Algerian nationalists during the Algerian War. And I was like, well, what is this? You know, and kind of tried to track down who some of these Christians were um, and what they were doing during the Algerian War. And that became the dissertation and eventually the book project, because in addition to tracing the Christians themselves and, and trying to figure out, what their engagement was in the Algerian War, it became a much larger project of trying to understand the role of Christianity in decolonization, both in the French Empire and sort of its broader impact on the world at this moment in time during the 1960s.
0: So this is a huge uh, question, Darcy, but what was the status of the study of Christianity in Algeria? When you began working on this, I mean, were you making an intervention to existing literature? Did you feel like you were kind of cracking something open? What was the existing field like? Well, there have been a few books written on the history of Christianity in Algeria,
1: one of which was um, André Nozier's book, which I cite quite a bit, which is from 1979, I think. But it's it's really more looking very specifically at Christianity during the Algerian War. There's some books that have been written on specific groups of Christians, um, a book uh, about the Mission de France, for example, and some books about individual Christians themselves. But there hadn't really been, and still hasn't really been, much written about uh, social histories of Christianity during the colonial period, for example. There'd been a Quite a lot of work that had been done by historians and sociologists of religion and Christianity in France. Almost none of it had done by been done by historians in the United States. So when I was doing, for example, my exam work and background reading before I went to go do the dissertation research, I kind of had the sense that like there was nothing. Mm. But when I got to France, I, I discovered that there is a very rich tradition of, of the history of Christianity and study of the history of Christianity, both theologically and sort of social history and sociology. So there is quite a bit of work. But less so of Algeria itself. Mm -hmm. And in particular, one of the things that's interesting is that there's almost no work that's been done that ties the Algerian war and what happened during the Algerian war to anything before or after. So there's like World War II, Christians in World War II, Christians in the 1930s, and then Christians in the Algerian war, but nobody had really made any connection between those two things for the most part.
0: You refer uh, to the project here, Darcy, in the introduction as uh, a project that, that is about provincializing the history of Christianity. So I guess I have a question in two parts. And the first is just about defining terms and terrain here. You know, how are you using Christianity? Like, who does that include? How, how and what do we know about what that means in the, in the history of Algeria? And then what does it mean to provincialize the history of Christianity? Great
1: questions. So when I'm using Christianity here, I am using it fairly expansively. So I'm talking about Christians themselves, and I'm using that to define both Protestants and Catholics. So for the most part, almost all of the Christians in Algeria are, in fact, Catholics. About 800,000 of the million settlers define themselves as Catholics And we're talking about probably the 1950s at this point in time. There's a population of Protestants, particularly of the Reformed Church, which is the largest denomination of Protestants in France at that point in time, but there are only about 6,000 of them. So they're a very very tiny minority out of that population however they are very engaged in the politics of what's happening with both the colonial project and with decolonization so i include them in this the story because i think it's quite important to acknowledge the role that they had and also because they're quite tied to catholicism as well because of because of what happens both in these events and in and the way that their religion is constructed within french algeria so I'm talking about the Christians themselves, but also Christianity as a kind of construct that's tied in with the colonial state, essentially, Mm -hmm. from the very beginning of the conquest in 1830 up until 1962. Um, it's one of the, the sort of ideas and uh, institutions that really holds up the, the colonial state in, in Algeria. And when I talk about Christianity as an ideology. It's an idea that um, supports the segregation of the Christian and Muslim population, and in particular, furthers the sort of violent process of the war by claiming that it's necessary to maintain French Algeria in order to maintain Christianity in North Africa. When I talk about provincializing it, um, I'm obviously referring to Bardi's conception mm-hmm. of provincializing europe but in the context of algeria when we talk about the history of christianity in france and even when we're talking about missionaries for the most part we're talking about um, european structures european theologies and how they are displaced into the colonial setting Mm -hmm. and in this context what i really wanted to look at was from the ground up in algeria how does christianity function Um, how do Christians in Algeria, not just the ones who are imported from the metropole in the 1950s, but the ones who are settlers who've been there for a very long time, understand Christianity, both as a theology and as sort of a social practice. So not just sort of seeing Christianity as a European project, but as something that functions um, in Algeria as both upholding the colonial state and challenging uh, the system of colonialism.
0: So in the first chapter of the book, Darcy, you trace the history of the role that Christianity played in Algeria from the period of conquest up to the outbreak of the War of Independence. Now, I mean, obviously, we don't have time to go into all the details of that history. But you make the point here that it's useful to consider Christianity, and I'm quoting you here, as a marker of identity formation alongside religious practice. So could you say something in general about how you're doing that as you're charting this history from about 1830 to the early 1950s? Yeah, absolutely. So we're looking
1: at European settler population in Algeria, obviously by the 1950s we have approximately 1 million European settlers who end up in Algeria. The vast majority of them are coming from Catholic countries, right? many of them from France, but not just from France. Uh, you have a lot of Spanish settlers who end up particularly in Western Algeria around mm-hmm. um people coming from Italy, from Malta. Uh, from a wide variety of different places. And it's very difficult actually to trace and define religious practice, right? Mm -hmm. To determine who is a practicing Catholic. This is one of the things I was actually discussing with an archivist at the the Archdiocese of Algiers. You know, they have these huge books of registers of baptisms and Mm. communions and that kind of thing. So we could, you know, catalog all of that, who went to church. But that's actually not necessarily the best way to do it because people didn't necessarily always go to church, particularly if they were working class, Mm -hmm. right? So there's all kinds of history and sociology of religion that determine that that's not always the best marker of tracing uh, religiosity or people's faith. And for the most part, what we can say in Algeria is that people would have determined themselves Catholic even if they didn't necessarily go to church. Because even by the 1930s, when you see a lot of anti-clericalism coming in, uh, people are turning to communism, they might still define themselves culturally as Catholic. And in particular, in Oran, which had a lot of Spanish Catholics, uh, there's kind of these grandiose religiosity. They had a lot of ceremonies, a lot of kind of pilgrimages, Uh, the cathedral there, they had had one church that was built up on uh, the mountain, you know, people would kind of go up there and there was kind of a lot of religious performance. Mm -hmm. So you can kind of trace how Catholicism in particular becomes this marker of identity formation for the settler state. Right. And for the settler population, by the way in which it embeds itself in settler culture, even if it's not necessarily tied to people going to mass Mm -hmm. or doing these other things that that might in other contexts be measures of um, religious belief. One of the things that the Catholic Church did was that it created these churches throughout. And so even in rural areas, there might be a small church with a bell, right? And that the bell, church bells themselves became a way to identify the Catholic Church as part of the settler regime and part of the settler state.
0: In this chapter, Darcy, you chart this gradual awakening to the injustices of the colonial system within a segment of the European population and you kind of connect this to the emergence of different sort of forms of social Christianity in the 1930s and 40s. So I guess I want to ask, you know, how and when does this kind of awakening happen in the Algerian context? And what size of the European Christian population are we talking about when we talk about this awakening? So we're really talking
1: about a very small handful of the uh, European Christian population in Algeria that's interested in the plight of the indigenous Algerians, mm. if I counted them, it would probably be fewer than 400, right, mm. out of nearly a million. There really aren't that many of them. Maybe, maybe a few more. Um, but what happens is they come into contact with theologies that are coming out of France Uh, that we broadly would call social christianity so in the in the protestant context you know they're coming to a certain extent out of also the, the ecumenical movement that's emerging in in europe at the time um and protestants that are interested in in socialism right so the idea that, that christians themselves should be engaged with the plight of the poor and with the problems that are emerging in europe in the 1930s in particular the shift toward fascism and and the movement toward communism and how can they reconcile uh, the problems of the political world with with that of the spiritual and a lot of this Uh, The kind of theological work that's going on is in both upper level theological movements and discussions in seminaries and so forth, but in youth movements and in particular in scout movements, um, which are becoming extremely important and and prominent in, in Europe by the 1930s. And similar things are happening with catholicism in France also. So beginning in, you know, the 1930s you have a lot of sort of leftists or say leftist catholicism theologians who are engaging in, you know, neo-Thomist movements that are uh, questioning the church's disengagement from the world, right? So they're... Catholics who had been engaged in the war on various levels and were concerned about this process of what's called de-Christianization, and in particular, the movement of the working classes toward communism and away from the Catholic Church. And so what emerges out of this is comes to be called the New Missionary Movement and the idea that Catholics need to become engaged to draw the working classes back into Catholicism. And so the the sort of first movement of this is what's known as the Jacques, or the Jeunesse Ouvrière Chrétienne, which comes out of Belgium in the 1920s and then into France. Mm. The idea that youth will go into sort of their various youth communities, in particular the young workers' communities, and be kind of missionaries to the working classes. And it spreads out into various other groups. You have, you know, the Jeunesse Agricole, uh, Jeunesse Etudiant Chrétienne. So each of these groups goes into their own milieu. Um, and as a missionary to that group to kind of draw them back into Christianity. And there comes to be a more even more radical movement out of this in 1941 with the establishment of the Mission de France, um, which is where priests themselves come to be kind of missionaries right into, into various, in particular, working class communities, um, but also more rural communities because there's they've lost a lot of priests by the early 1940s. And the seminary in Lisieux, which is founded to help train priests for this missionary activity, is quite radical in the sense that these priests are trained in Marxism. They're trained in these in these new theologies of, of leftist Catholicism. Uh, but they come to be known as progressists, which is this, you know, very Uh, dangerous and nasty word um, in Europe by the late 1930s and early 1940s, particularly for the Catholic hierarchy, which is becoming more and more anti-communist and kind of violently anti-communist. And it's very suspicious of the work that these priests are doing. So all of these kinds of more radical theological movements that are happening in France, that are being condemned by the Vatican as being too engaged with Marxism, are also emerging in Algeria. But the questions that they're asking are very different, because they're not just going to engage with the working classes, they're engaging with the Muslim population. And so they're asking about colonialism. How did we get in the state of segregation of the wealthy European population and the completely impoverished uh, Muslim population that's here? What does this mean theologically? What does this mean sociologically? And what do we need to do? to engage with it. So by the early 1950s, it's in particular students. There's a few priests, kind of radical priests that are engaged with us, but it's student groups, scout groups that become the most radically engaged in this, this problem of Algerian colonization.
0: So Darcy, that covers quite a period of time. And I just wonder about the role of the war, not the Algerian war, the Second World War, in this period as things are you know, changing in in France, but also the impact in Algeria. I mean, I know that's kind of huge. But did World War II catalyze something in particular with respect to Christianity in Algeria? I think to a certain extent it did. Both Algerians and
1: Christians were called up. Things kind of became crystallized to a certain extent because most of the christian population supported vichy right that had been the the normal way of things right you support your political leaders plus they were fairly conservative so you know the national revolution made sense right kind of getting rid of these these leftist theologies you know made sense so a lot of what happens um, in terms of activism, particularly leftist activism within the church happens in the aftermath of World War II. when you see a lot of the, the kinds of engagements in the aftermath of Satif, for example, which is you know horrific, but the European population, uh, the reaction of the European population in general is just to kind of like blow it off. Mm. Right. This is a thing, you know, that was the fault of the Algerians. They should never have been out there anyway. Right. You know, it's, uh, it's a catalyst for the the Algerian population, but for the Europeans, they just don't want to think about it at all. Mm. So there's, there's kind of momentum out of those who were engaged with, with the questions of colonialism. And you can see it both in, you know, the kind of European publications Um, esprit, the more leftist ones that are thinking about colonialism, both in terms of, you know, there's 1947 in Madagascar, there's uh, what's happening in in Indochina that's really pushing for questions of colonialism to kind of come out. But it's not until really the early 1950s that things start to get kind of a little bit more um, heated up and and engaged with with even the leftist uh, Christian population in Algeria.
0: The figure who emerges, Darcy, really from the beginning of the book, but especially in this uh, first chapter, is Leon Etienne Duval. Could you tell us a little bit about him and his significance to to this history? So, he was a priest who was born he was born in Savoie, or at least he kind of
1: emerged um, as a major Catholic figure in the Savoie and the Haute Savoie during World War II. Um, and that was an important area, obviously, during World War II, because that's where a lot of the uh, rescue operations of saving Jews and various others who needed to escape out of France were taking place, mm. and that really marked him. Uh, he talked about in a lot of his memoirs and interviews later in his life. Um, he ended up coming to Algeria in 1947 when he was nominated as the bishop of Constantine in Ippo, uh, which is an important diocese. There's there's really three major canonical dioceses in Algeria. Fourth one was later added in the Sahara, but you have Algiers, you have Oran. And then Constantine and Hippo. And of course it's it's named very clearly to reflect the ancient canonical diocese of Saint Augustine. So he's he's named in this region. It's a region in eastern Algeria, borders on Tunisia. It's a very conservative area. Constantine even today is a very conservative city, sort of around Islam rather than Christianity, obviously. Mm. But it's it's this kind of dramatic city built on these gorges, and then it's a mountainous area that encompasses some of Kabylia and then uh, kind of eastern Algeria very unsettled area. He arrives at a time when the, the church hierarchy, which in Algeria I think is also important to note, is very different than the rest of the French Empire. Mm. It's connected to the archdiocese of Aix-en-Provence. You know, all these bishops and archbishops are named from France. You know, Algeria is essentially part of the metropole rather than a colony. Mm. So he he moves to uh, Algiers in 1954, a few months before the start of the Algerian War, and becomes this really kind of mythical figure. But from the very beginning, he tries to maintain this line that he wants to, you know, maintain the unity of the Catholic Church, but he also wants to kind of maintain peace between all the religious communities. It obviously becomes quite impossible once the Algerian war breaks out. The, the propaganda very early on comes to be seen as this war between the Christian and the Muslim populations. The Jews are kind of stuck in the middle somewhere, you know, depending on what side they, their personal leanings happen to, to be on. And he, for a wide variety of reasons based on different positions that he takes on various issues, people see him as this kind of huge religious figure in Algeria. And so people who uh, end up being arrested and tortured, and this includes Algerians in particular, write letters to him believing that he can intercede on their behalf with the French authorities. He gets tons and tons of hate mail. In his archives, there's just, they're just you know, files and files and files of the hate mail that he got from Catholics for the most part. Um, who believed that he'd betrayed them, and he comes to gain the name Mohammed Duval. He'd made uh, several private intercessions with the government, government officials, and military officials protesting torture, protesting various other violent atrocities that had taken place, Um, and he supported what he thought was kind of morally right. Through through everything in the war. And I think everybody has different opinions about him, right? Some people Mm -hmm. thought he never went far enough in his support for Algerian independence. Tons of people thought he went way too far, but he remained this really kind of important figure throughout the war. And at the end of the war, the Algerians believed that he had had supported them.
0: And he stays in Algeria until... Until his death
1: in in the 90s, yeah, and he became a cardinal in the 1960s, I believe, and that became really important and symbolic to the Algerians, the Algerian Muslim population in particular, because there were very few Catholics by that time. But it was kind of a symbol that that this ecclesiastical leader in Algeria who'd supported Algerian independence to them was was being given this this validation by the Vatican.
0: In the second chapter of the book, Darcy, you really delve into the history of this completely fascinating trial that takes place in 1957, a trial of multiple Christians. Well, they're not, the Christians aren't the only ones on trial at this time, but you were really focused on the Christians who are accused of supporting Algerian nationalists. And you talk about the significance of this trial because it sort of unfolds during the Battle of Algiers. Could you tell us a little bit about what made this trial, well, what happened, what were these Christians on trial for, but also what made this trial so distinct and what, what role it plays in your story? Yeah. So this is this really kind of
1: insane uh, series of events of these, these 12 Christians who are put on trial for undermining the security of the French state in the summer of 1957.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a pretty diverse group of people. Five or six of them are social workers who work in the centre socio. I talk a little bit about the diversity of the centre socio. There's a group of centre socio that are in fact created by Catholics, um, including this one priest, Jean Scoteau who's part of the, the group of the Mission de France. He brings the Mission de France to um, Algeria, actually, and he's a very kind of radical priest in the sense that he's very engaged in this movement of Christian-Muslim dialogue and, and social services. And the Algerian population is incredibly impoverished, and there, you know, a lot of urbanization. As many of them, the men, in particular, in rural areas, have been moving to France to work in the late 1940s and 1950s. And so there's just a lot of people moving to the cities, but there's there's no housing, right? It's part of this big housing crisis. So they're living in these shanty towns with no running water, um, just really bad conditions. And so they set up these uh, centers with ha- which have like, you know, some medical care, some schooling, because this is the other, you know, great travesty of this the situation is that there's massive, massive illiteracy. 98% of the female population is illiterate, 94% of the male population. I can't remember the exact numbers. Um, So one of the things that they're, they're also doing is teaching people how to read and helping them with bureaucratic tasks, filling in forms, and so on and so forth. So... Uh, Germaine Tillion ends up in 1955 creating a much more official government version of this this project, the Centre social And even though she attaches it to the Ministry of Education, it still seemed to be a very problematic program for many, particularly those who were really attached to French Algeria because it hires an equal number of, of Europeans and, and Arabs, what they call Muslim Algerians at the time. And so it seemed to be infiltrated by the FLN. So these social workers, uh, the Catholic social workers, are arrested because supposedly they have ties to a blonde woman who is believed to be the uh, female milk bar bomber in the Battle of Algiers. And if you've seen the film, The Battle of Algiers, you know that in fact there were three um, Algerian women, one of whom dyes her hair blonde uh, and goes down out of the casbah and plants the bomb in the milk bar. But at the time, in early 1957... The French believed it was this uh, French woman um, who had ties to the Communist Party mm-hmm. and that she had been connected with these uh, women in the socio and that she had been hiding in two Catholic convents. And so they, in the midst of the Battle of Algiers, as we all know, they were um, arresting and torturing all of these militants and whoever they could, and then um, trying to gain information on, on who had connections with these various groups. So they end up uh, supposedly capturing this man named George Marcelli who identifies this woman based on the back of her head in a photograph, supposedly, and says that she's also tied to some bombing on another bus. And then all of this unravels and all of these Christians who supposedly had ties to this woman all get arrested. And um, several of them, the women in particular, were imprisoned and tortured for several months in the Villa Cezini and various other places before their, the trial begins in uh, July. Uh, some of the other christians uh, one of whom was the assistant to the mayor of algiers had had various other uh, issues that they were being accused of so it wasn't necessarily all connections with this woman but anyway the trial begins and it's this massive drama right that the idea that these 12 christians and in fact there's 23 other Algerians on trial with them that hardly ever get talked about, in fact. But you see newspaper headlines in all the newspapers in Algeria, many, many newspapers in France, talking about the, the trial of the Katian Progressiste. And of course, as I try to kind of indicate, I think it hopefully is very clear why the term Progressiste is so explosive, mm-hmm. right? That it's, that it's not just uh, an adjective, right? That it means very clearly communism.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it's a very pejorative term uh, within any kind of Catholic context because progressisme uh, has been condemned by the Vatican. So just even calling them the Christian progressiste and any kind of you know publication condemns them automatically as having some kind of invalid theology. And it's very polemical. So there's all this discussion about what they did, right? whether they were tied to the milk bar bomber, whether they were hiding the milk bar bomber. There's no discussion in any of the publications about the fact that they had been tortured for several months. And then I talk about the fact that in fact, the military already knew that this woman that they had been hiding was not the milk bar bomber because they would captured the woman that they believed was the milk bar bomber, the Algerian woman. So my claim is that the entire thing is just a show trial. And it's very much tied into what's happening in the Battle of Algiers, mm. and in particular General Massu. Uh, Massu really believed himself to be a good Christian and defined the project that he was doing in Algeria as a Christian project. And in his you can really see this very clearly in his memoir, where he writes about himself as a Catholic, who's acting as this kind of, you know, civilizing mission project in the footsteps of these, you know, 19th century colonizers, and that he's in this ideological fight against, in particular, two evil men, Duval and Scotto. (laughs) And kind of the best way that he can prove that his Christianity's right and theirs is wrong is this, you know, big public trial, where he puts the progressiste vision you know, on trial itself, and it ends up not really working out as well for him. But it's this really kind of clear moment where Christianity, where we see a demonstration of how key uh, Christianity as an ideology becomes in what's happening in Algeria.
0: And you note this difference um, in terms of the outcome of the trial and its impact between those Europeans who were those European Christians and the, the Muslim Algerian defendants. Do you want to say something about that? Yeah, I mean, they they essentially say all except for one of the Christians,
1: uh, a man named Pierre Coudre, who uh, claims that what he was doing was was political and he was trying to help the Algerians in their fight for independence. That um, all the other Christians got off, right? That they 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 didn't have to serve any prison sentences except for Pierre Coudre and all the other Muslim Algerians on trial did, because what the what the judge ended up saying was that their actions were necessarily political because they were fighting for independence. But the Christians were engaged in Christian charity, which is what their their defense ended up being. But everybody else was engaged in a political project, therefore they were guilty of some crime because Algerian independence could not happen. Right? It was this was a crime against France.
0: So in this in this chapter on the trial, Darcy, you you know certainly engage with what people uh, in the metropole are saying and thinking about Christians in Algeria. But the next chapter of the book really focuses on. French Christian responses to the war. And you make the argument that we need to understand French Christian responses within the context of global decolonization, moving away from, you know, too much of a focus on national identity. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that claim means and how you are in response to other historians or scholars who are thinking about the Algerian War, and in particular, the French Christian responses to the war? Yeah. So, as I mentioned, I'm certainly not the first
1: historian to look at at French Christianity in the context of the Algerian War.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: But a lot of what historians have looked at previously is mostly French intellectual Christians and a lot of what comes off is that you know French intellectuals end up writing treatises against torture, and obviously these are extremely important because they help transform metropolitan opinion about torture, and that that obviously we should we should consider but one of the things that I talk about is this is this is a very limited viewpoint if we're thinking about Christianity and its role in the Algerian war and in decolonization more generally in part because of you know, what Todd Shepard has shown about how the vast majority of the French population doesn't really support Algerian decolonization and independence until very late, until, you know, after 1959. And even a lot of these people, these Christians who are writing about torture itself, aren't writing about Algerian independence. They're writing about torture. And the frame in that they're doing it is not actually necessarily even a theological frame. They're talking about how they can, you know, tortures against French honor. There's a lot of, you know, the comparison with the Gestapo or Nazis in particular that comes out of this, this way of thinking about the relationship between France and torture in between, particularly 1955 and and 1957. So, it's not as though, and there's been kind of this kind of heroic myth that's been created about these these men in particular,
0: mm. as
1: though they they were they were really magnificent for having written about torture, and therefore we should see them as these great defenders of Algerian independence, but they, they very rarely wrote about Algerian independence, and if they did, it was, it was late mm. as well. Um, so what I'm kind of arguing here is that we need to kind of look at a broader picture of what was happening during the Algerian War, both on a level of thinking about uh, different groups of people, and also how it was responding to these bigger questions about decolonization more generally. One of the things I'm interested in is is what institutions were saying, uh, responding. Not only to questions of torture, but Algerian independence, right? Could that be a legitimate thing? And then how were Christians themselves understanding what was happening around these issues? Mm-hmm. I think this is really important because one of the things, when you look at you know all the reflections and the discussions going on in the French hierarchy in France, um, and the, particularly the ACA, the Association of Cardinals and Archbishops, which is the, the big association that runs mm-hmm. the hierarchy, they made very, very few statements Uh, publicly about the Algerian war nothing about independence (laughs) mostly Mm -hmm. it was like uh there was you know statement or two about torture but it was very vague and it was like you should not do anything that harms people you know things like that Um, And it was like, okay, that means nothing, right? And very similar kinds of things with the French Protestant Federation, which is the umbrella organization for French Protestants. Mm. And so what you see is that there's just there's a lot of discussion about this, but they can never really come to an agreement on what they're going to say. And this becomes extremely troubling for Christians in France, and in particular for young men, right, who get called up in the draft or have Mm. to go to Algeria, right, because the both churches like refuse to make statements on this, and to give guidance to these these poor men who are like, well, what do we do in these circumstances right. when we're faced with these things that we have to do that we don't want to do? And so the question of civil disobedience also becomes a, a key means through which the French population engages with the question of what's happening in Algeria, and and through torture. I can't. Is it is it a right of soldiers to? To refuse to perform these acts, but also they're they're part of this broader framework of what also you know the Vatican is thinking about this, these questions of decolonization and, and missionaries. Like, are we going to get kicked out of all of these decolonizing countries? The, the World Council of Churches also thinking about this. They're sending people into Algeria because it's becoming you know the worst example of what of what could happen at this moment of decolonization and really looking at. Christian-Muslim relations, and are becoming very concerned about that this is going to set a precedent that's going to be very bad for Christians if things don't shape up both the Christian population in Algeria itself and the ways that the church hierarchies in France itself is responding to these problems.
0: So as we move towards the end of the war, Darcy, what changing or continuing role, does does Christianity play in the unfolding of the end of empire in Algeria? So in that last period of time of the late 50s, early 60s, where are the Christians in the story of the end of the war? You know, things get much more tense with the emergence of the OAS. Mm. On the
1: one hand, the OAS uh, uses, just like much of the military, is Christianity as kind of a justification for their existence, um, some of their pamphlets and then the the ways that they emerge from far-right Catholicism and anti-Christ uh, kinds of movements, Mm. right? They're they're really pulling on that genealogy. And they target the progressist Christians, right? They target uh, CIMAD, which is a French Protestant aid organization that was working in the recruitment camps. Um, They target uh, the lawyers who had been defending Christian progressists in the trial. They target Duval's church. Right? They plant a bomb outside the arch- Archbishop's church. Uh, they plant lots of bombs, in fact, in churches. It's very clear who their targets are. I mean, the vast majority of the targets are Algerian civilians, but they also very clearly target any Europeans who they believe sided with the with the Algerian population against them. Um, so it becomes quite dangerous for for many of these Christians. In the midst of this, they, they kind of have to make a decision about what they're going to do, especially be- as it becomes clear that Algeria is going to become independent. Mm. So both the Catholic and the Protestant churches start to have discussions about what they want their churches to look like. Um, at the moment of independence and the Catholics much more, like they've already been thinking about this, particularly the leftist Catholics, as this project of not only decolonization of the political state, but how can we decolonize our practices of of the church, you know, some of the not only the priests, but some of the members of the church themselves have joined the FLN, actually physically. Some of them are in Tunis with the with the GPR, which is the provisional Algerian government. And just before independence, uh, Duval sends uh, Jean Scoteau, his sort of right hand man, to go negotiate with some other church, what some priests who joined the FLN, in fact, to think about what what is the GPRA thinking in terms of the role of Catholicism in post-colonial Algeria? Um, what will the, the status of the church look like? I think it's really important to note that because there are representatives of the Catholic church in the GPRA, or at least connected to the GPRA, they can negotiate directly with them because there were these Catholics, even if there's a very small number, um, who very visibly sided with the FLN and sided with the Algerians. And Duval, even though he doesn't you know, necessarily has not made public statements about Algerian independence, he is viewed to be somebody that supported Algerian independence. And that makes a huge difference for the Catholic Church, I think, at the moment of independence. The Protestants, it's a little less clear. Like the Reformed Church in Algeria, just seems to be kind of blindsided by the entire thing. They don't really know what to do. They're very confused about a lot of things and they, they don't really know even know how to kind of negotiate these policies or what's gonna to happen to them at the at the moment of independence. But they in some ways they're also protected because they have they have CMOD, which is this this aid organization that's been working with the FLN at various levels that can kind of protect them as well. Um, from getting simply, you know, kicked out of the country at independence.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it ends up working fairly well for the Christians that want to stay. But of course, the vast majority don't, right? The vast majority right. uh, end up leaving, about 800,000. Um, and so the ones who stay really kind of engage in this very, you know, active Process of, of both rebuilding the church from the ground up and transforming it into something very different than what it had been before. And they, they you know, they think through very carefully how can we make this a church that's not reflective of the colonial regime, one that's of service to the Algerian population, um, and that what Duval calls it, the Église d'Algérie, right, mm. the Church of Algeria. Um, that's that's not just a church for the European population, but that serves as well the Algerian population. And one of the kind of big symbolic things that they do is they hand over the Cathedral Saint-Philippe, which was the the seat of the the Archbishop, which had been the Quechua Mosque before uh, 1830, before the conquest, back to the Algerian government um, at independence to kind of demonstrate their, supposedly their good faith in this this moment of transition.
0: So there's something that I'm just not entirely getting, Darcy, which is that I I understand that there are some Christians who are engaged, who have a commitment to doing good social and other types of work in Algeria, and so they would want to stay in 1962. What I guess I don't understand is, given that it's a place where, where church activity was primarily aimed at a European settler population, why the the support, the continuation of this kind of like infrastructure, like why all of this energy in an emerging post-colonial Algeria for a broader Christian institutional network, what is it that is so important about keeping the church presence in Algeria after 1962, given that most of the Christians leave? That's a very good question. I think a lot of it has to do with
1: um, seeing this as this radically transformed Situation. I mean, it is this project of decolonizing the church, mm-hmm. right? So how can we make this church, which had been essentially a colonial institution into one that becomes an institution that serves the Algerian population,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? So what can, what can we do with ourselves, right? So many of these people who stay are, are priests
0: yeah.
1: or they're uh, nuns and, and various other people who had been teachers. Right. They've been teaching in the Catholic schools and and obviously lay men and women as well um, who who have various other jobs, but who had been in part committed to Algerian independence for theological reasons. Right. Because they'd seen it as a Christian project to liberate uh, the Algerian people from the chokehold of French colonialism. Mm -hmm. And so they see in the possibilities of, you know, this project of Algeria as this, you know, kind of third world revolutionary state as doing the same thing with the church itself. And it's both Catholics and to a certain extent, some Protestants. And there's a project of, development that's going on with the Protestants as well, both in CMOD is working with it, but the World Council of Churches creates their own development project, both in part because the, the Algerian government asks for help with that, but they see this as an attempt to kind of engage with the third world through mm-hmm. through development that they can kind of experiment with in Algeria. Right, at the same moment, as you have Vatican II going on, right? Vatican right. II starts in 1962, and the World Council of Churches is having this meeting in New Delhi in 1961, where they're trying to think through right, the inner international missionary council has been you know integrated into this and they're trying to think through that too like we can't have normal missionaries anymore you know a bunch of europeans who think they're better than the rest of the world who just go out and preach christianity we have to kind of rethink this entire structure of how we're going to engage with the rest of the world and what christianity actually means in the aftermath of decolonization and algeria because it's been so centrally You know, part of the the debates and the questions in the previous years becomes Mm -hmm. really a key part of both of these uh, discussions that are going on at both the Vatican and the World Council of Churches in this moment.
0: It, It just makes me wonder, like, is it is there a bit of like, if we make things in Algeria work, that will be a symbol to the rest of the third world, as Algeria is also a symbol to third world nationalisms, but also a little bit of, you know, if we can make it work there, we can... We can make it work anywhere. Is that New York, New York that I'm doing now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like on the one hand, you could say abandoning Algeria wouldn't have been such a huge surprise since there weren't that many Christians, you know, the Christians, most of the Christians yeah. left anyway. But then maybe it's, it's that very exceptionalism of the history of Christianity in colonial Algeria that makes keeping Christianity there on the other side, you know, possible and so important. Is that, does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that's it exactly. But I mean, like some of those people, you know, a lot of the trauma, right, of, of the P leaving was that they, they had never lived anywhere else, right? They had these roots there. I and mean, then a lot of people who stay are the same, right? They've been P forever. But they have they have a much stronger reason, they believe, to stay, right? Because they they're accepted by the population, they fought for independence, they they see themselves as Algerian. And some of them do take Algerian and nationality, right? They or their, their children intermarry with Algerians and they kind of see themselves as, mm-hmm. as Algerians. So, for Duval, yes, this kind of question of like, we fought through this, we're not abandoning the church kind of thing. But I think for some of the, the p there's, there's, there's a little bit more personally invested in, in the country itself.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, at one point you said, we're talking about 400 or so, like a handful of Christians by the time we get to, I don't know, maybe not 1962, but let's say 1970 or so. I mean, and I don't expect you to have some exact statistic, but how many people stay after 1962? And then, you know, what are we talking about in terms of the influx of new Christians, just in hundreds or are there thousands? I mean, how many many people are we looking at? This is kind of impossible to know. I spent yeah.
1: years trying to find out exactly. <laughs> I'm sure you did. <laughs> <laughs> many, many archives and running around trying yeah. to figure this number out because there's no clear census numbers. Sure. Um, so it's usually, we'll say, like 200,000 stay. Uh, some of those just don't have the means to leave, right? They can't can't necessarily leave. But then you have an influx of probably like 25,000 cooperants who come in initially. And then they're kind of like people are moving in and out on short-term contracts. It's hard to say who's coming and staying because they, they need specific types of people and, and people are coming from a wide variety. That's 25,000 people from France. But then there's people coming in from you know the Soviet bloc and, and various other places um, as well. But then you have uh, the nationality code changes and nationality code sort of defines who can become an Algerian and it's very limiting. So a lot of people end up leaving because of that. And then 1965 really kind of transforms things because the education system changes. It kind of limits the people who can work in, in different positions in Algeria, and in particular, who can be teachers.
0: Mm.
1: But it's still, quite a few Europeans are, are in Algeria up until 1975. That's really when uh, the shift happens because of Lumenien's uh, Arabization policies. So I would say you still have a, a pretty significant European population and Christian population. In 1975, it starts to transform and harden into really the hardcore group who are are willing to stay right who are willing to learn arabic either take algerian nationality or just kind of like be there and aren't leaving uh even if things get challenging for them um which they do at at specific moments in time it's hard to say but it dwindles down to a few thousand and by the 90s obviously quite a lot of them leave but you still have this kind of hardcore group of of a few thousand who stay even through the worst of of the 90s civil war and then more of them are coming back now Mm -hmm. um It kind of ebbs and flows depending on the the politics of of what the Algerian state is doing, possibilities for where they can work and how they can work, all those kinds of questions.
0: You close the book, Darcy, with this uh, story from the Algerian civil war of the the 1990s uh, and the kidnapping and beheading of these Trappist monks from a monastery in central Algeria. So could you tell us a little bit about that story, how it unfolded, and what the the link is and how, how you connect it back to, to this history of Christianity uh, in and around the decolonization of Algeria that you explore in the book. Yeah, it's this, this
1: really awful, tragic story of um, the Trappist monks in the monastery of Tiberine, uh in central Algeria near near Medea. And in the missile of the War, you may have seen the film of Gods and Men, which uh, mm. dramatizes the story somewhat. So this monastery had been you know, part of colonial Algeria for quite some time and then in the aftermath of independence uh, there was some discussion of closing it but uh, Monsignor Duval who had become cardinal decided that it really needed to stay open because there, there needed to be a place of, of prayer and contemplation for the Christian population and it was kind of an important site and during, during the Algerian war uh, the doctor who had been there had helped the, the civilian population and it was, it was kind of this important place for, for the Christian population too. So it had remained open and was this you know, kind of out of the way location, but the I think nine Trappist monks who were there in the nineties, you know, kept the, the place open, you know, they had a small garden and raised bees for honey. Um, the doctor helped help the civilians and so forth. And it was led by this monk named Christian de Charger who was quite well-known for his interest in Christian-Muslim dialogue, and so it had been there for a long time. And during the 90s and the, the Algerian Civil War, Christians had been increasingly targeted by the GIA, one of the, the armed Islamist groups, and there had been several notable assassinations. And the monks had been, in fact, they'd had some interactions with the, the local GIA Emir in the region uh, before the, the kidnapping. Um, so they had kind of known that there, this was a hot spot. In fact, this area was called the Triangle of Death, and it was quite dangerous. But they, So there had been discussions about whether or not they should leave. Uh, but a lot of the Christians, uh, in fact, who'd been there had decided to stay, including Monsignor Duval, who was very old. Um, he'd retired. So the monks ended up being kidnapped, um, mm-hmm. all except for one uh, who had hidden. And there had been a lot of uh, negotiations while they were held hostage uh, between the Algerian government and the French government about how to kind of deal with this and in the end everything had, had failed. Um, there had been a, an attempt to rescue them but it failed but and so um, there was an announcement that they had been beheaded and it was announced they were to find the bodies, but in fact, all that was found was the heads, which has led to all kinds of speculation about what exactly had happened
0: hmm.
1: um, to them, whether it was the, the GIA or Algerian government. Anyway, nobody nobody knows exactly
0: hmm.
1: um, what happened, um, and it was this really off, obviously very tragic event and the day that that they found the the heads of the monks was the day Monsignor Duval had died as well. Mm. So They ended up holding um, a joint funeral for all of them at uh, Notre Dame d'Afrique in in Algiers and then buried the monks um, at the monastery in Tiberine, which still remains this kind of holy site for the uh, Catholic Church in Algeria.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Obviously, the civil war ended and um, he's kind of moved on. And now the the monks, in fact, have been beatified by the the Pope. There's possibly going to be a um, ceremony with the Pope in Orang in the coming months. Nobody's quite sure exactly what what will happen with that. The Algerian government has given its permission for the Pope to attend the ceremony, but there's been no announcement from the Vatican about it. But this would be, uh, I mean, kind of this major event, the first time a Pope had ever gone to Algeria. And in particular, this uh, ceremony of the beatification of these um, monks that were killed during the Algerian War, I think, would be something quite interesting, especially for this Pope that's kind of uh, positioned himself as
0: mm-hmm.
1: as being a defender of, of the you know global South. Um, I don't quite know exactly what to make of make of all of this if it will even happen. But even when the events took place, when Moussineel Duval died, there was this kind of massive outpouring of support from the Algerian Muslim population, even as you know the, the Christians were a handful of casualties in this you know civil war that killed 200,000 civilians. So I mean they they were very symbolic in that instance because they were, they were European targets. But one of the reasons I ended the book with this was because you know the Christians who stayed obviously were in great danger. But the reasons that they stayed was they believed that it was necessary to. Remain in solidarity with the Algerian Muslim population who couldn't leave, right? They had Mm -hmm. the possibility to leave, but they believed that it was important for them to stay, whether they did it in life or in death part of what Tibaherrin represents is that you know this was this kind of moment of of solidarity with with the Algerians and that so you know it was it was this dramatic incident and mm. i think it's symbolic of the way that the catholics who continue to stay there position themselves currently in in algeria and think of themselves as having a place in algerian society and from what i can kind of tell are accepted for the most part within that i think it's an interesting thing you don't really see that in a lot of other mm. Places where the Christians are such a tiny minority, but they, they don't proselytize, right? They very clearly position themselves in that way. They're there to be of service, and they're very frustrated when they have other Christian groups, particularly American evangelicals who come in and kind of violate the, what they see as the terms of their position in Algerian society.
0: You bring this story back around to some issues that you know are present throughout the book, but are also much bigger issues for you know our consideration of the history of France and its Empire and also of you know religious differences within contemporary France metropolitan France I guess we can still call it that and this question of secularism so could you say <laughs> a few words about how you understand this book as a contribution to I don't know a more critical thinking through of contemporary debates and issues around secularism the place of islam in contemporary france if you have thoughts on on any of that
1: yeah the way i was thinking about this is like obviously this is not a book about Mm laicite or really the conflicts between laicite and and islam in contemporary Mm -hmm. france but i wanted to kind of offer a parallel history because if we're really kind of taking seriously uh thinking about you know, Algeria as part of France, right, as the French like to do, or or thinking about the metropolitan colony in the same frame, then I'm really trying to make the case here that that religion was really a key Mm -hmm. played a key role in, in what happened here in both Algerian war and its aftermath then we kind of can't take seriously the claim that this that France was this laïque state all the way mm-hmm. up through the 20th century because it's played this massive role both in the articulation of the rhetoric and in the practice of one of the key wars of the 20th century here, uh, both from the people on the ground, the individuals, laymen and women, but from the state itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that had to do with articulating a very Christian position from the state against you know, a Muslim population.
0: Right.
1: So I kind of wanted to offer this as a way to, to kind of reframe a lot of these discussions that have, you know, really pitched uh, the French state as this kind of laïque like state against, you know, this, this Muslim population invading from outside um, and just kind of point out that, in fact, you know, this is this is not necessarily an accurate depiction, especially if we provincialize the story a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And we reframe it and look at this and see how Christianity is really embedded even in these claims to be a laic state and all of these practices and the rhetoric here. And that religion itself is constantly transforming, Mm -hmm. right? There is no one clear Christianity. Everybody's using Christianity in different ways. And even in their relationship with Islam, it's really, really transforming as well.
0: Yeah, I think for me, you know, some of the things that I really take away, apart from, you know, the fascinating details of this history, are these points that you make again and again in different ways that, you know, religion and politics need to be understood as completely imbricated in at least the Algerian context and certainly beyond that context in, in the period that you cover and really up to the present. And yeah, that there's no universal definition of Christianity, of religion in general, um and i think you make this point in the conclusion really clearly where you talk about the the fact that the line between religion and secularism is fluid and i think that that insight bears many lessons for how we think about those debates about secularism in contemporary france
1: yeah hopefully i mean i think some people have have responded to this this conclusion that like this is a very jarring you know difference this we're talking about islam and and the veil and and France here and I'm not really talking about the veil but you know this and what you're talking about is you know Christianity and torture in Algeria and I'm like yeah it's true but what what I'm really trying to get at here is the the fact that all of these positions that the state is taking have to do with with its framing of what religion means versus what secularism means mm-hmm. and that this line between them is constantly changing based on what the state wants out of something right mm-hmm. it's not as though there is just this is what religion means, this is what the secular means. It's always shifting.
0: So, Darcy, I have one more question for you, which is what are you working on now? Well, I am in the middle
1: of writing a textbook on France and its empire from the eighteenth century to the present, which is a very interesting project that I took on in a fit of hubris, thinking it would take no time at all, and this taking forever and ever because it's it's very challenging mm-hmm. but the good thing about it is I'm getting to read all of the French history and all of my colleagues amazing work um, not just in French history obviously but in African history and mm-hmm. South Asian history Southeast Asian history and uh, the Atlantic world and and all kinds of amazing work um, and then I'm working on a couple of other research projects one of which is a history of Cmod the French Protestant uh, aid organization
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which is a fairly radical, Organization, if any of you are following what's happening with the French government and and refugees, you might notice CMOD out there being one of the most vocal and confrontational Mm -hmm. organizations um, with the government. And part of what I'm looking at is its genealogy in this particular, in in its confrontations with the government. And I have an article coming out on that later this summer with Humanity. Mm -hmm. And then another project that potentially will be coming off the ground at some point uh, that will kind of build on what I'm talking about with the, the post colonial third worldist Christianity, but extending this into Latin America in the 1960s and 70s and and what happens with that as well.
0: Well, Darcy, I just want to thank you so much for talking with me and for writing the book.
1: Thank you. It was a great pleasure.